A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 216 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your podcast of legends as well as canon, your ticket to that galaxy far, far away. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division of Podcasts at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes as well as Stitcher and right on our own Twitter and Facebook pages at SW Beyond Films. Hey, but enough about how you got here. Let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of our multiverse, the bipolar Star Wars fan, Mark Herleman. And with me like a Wookiee reunited with his father, the EU guru himself, the count of our two continuities, Mr. Nathan P. Butler. Hey, everybody. I guess if that's canonical, it means that I'm going to get... A new name later in life, but because the younger name sounds kind of stupid, we're just going to go ahead and assume that I got the older name now? Or something. That was a reference to Chewie's kid, after all. Yeah, that was that was a weird one. We'll get to that, too, I'm sure. I mean, I'm still kind of like, the whole two-name thing? Like, we brought that into canon? There was a lot of stuff uh, being brought into canon with this book. I was kind of surprised. There was. Not necessarily all for the best, but, uh, but yeah, it was interesting. So, uh... So yeah, so on this end, we're um, we're gearing up. I should be actually once we're done recording, the mail should have arrived today, and based on what I'm seeing on the tracking, I should have my uh, uh, package that has the celebration passes for me and my wife Yay. should be there in the mail. And then we're just about at this point, we're about two weeks out from the digital home video release of Rogue One, and then about a week after that, week and a half, we're going to get the physical release, which means that we're getting close to me being able to put the final touches on the book and all. So I'm um, it's kind of a uh, it's exciting anticipation time over on this end as we're all just kind of saying, "Oh my gosh, can we please have March just end?" I mean, we're in Atlanta or the Atlanta area. I've been running around in t-shirts and frankly we could have worn shorts for most of the last couple of weeks driving with the windows down and tonight they're like, "Yes, yes, and there'll be snow in North Georgia." And we're like, "What?" <laughs> It's finally got to you. We just got hit by all that, and it's finally moved past us. <laughs> I just, I don't, I'm like, we're in the south, damn it. Yeah, the snowy south, apparently. You know, it's exciting for me that you're getting to go to Celebration. I'm bummed I'm not getting to go, but what I think is really cool is the advances in technology, especially things like Facebook Live. Like, that wasn't around when I went to Celebration Anaheim, and I'm just thinking, like, man, I would be streaming everything. I think my phone would be dead, like, within 30 minutes. <laughs> Nice, yeah. That's one of the things I want to play around with before we actually wind up going down there, just so I can do some of that while there. Again, I'm not super excited about any particular, like, this panel or that panel, although Michael, my buddy and the head guy for uh, Cloud City Casino, is going to have uh, a panel on the collecting track about Star Wars exclusives and whatnot, which will be cool, so I'm kind of excited for that, more for him than just seeing a panel in general. Uh, I'm much more interested in just meeting people. Nice. Keep Riley away, though. <laughs> Riley will be there and be like, don't do it! You'll be all, like, tying him up in a box, like, Riley, stop telling everybody not to buy exclusives! <laughs> nah, but I don't know. I'm just, I'm excited to meet people that I haven't met. I'm, I'm probably more excited for the Star Wars Report uh, 
a dinner meetup thing on the Friday of celebration than I am for actual celebration. And and now, of course, I'm sitting back going, okay, got to get to the Del Rey booth. Got to get those samplers. <laughs> got to get three copies, I think it is now, of the exclusive Thrawn. Got to do it. Got to do it. We can do this. Ready, set, you know, game plan, go. So it's just... It's it's an odd feeling getting ready for it, I suppose. Not not really akin to the feeling that I had going into Con Carolinas year after year. Um, I guess because this time, part of me doesn't know what to expect, and part of me doesn't care what to expect and just wants to have the experience. And then in the back of my mind, there's the, okay, and your hotel's going to cost how much? <laughs> so, um, but yes, yeah, Celebration is coming soon. Uh, we have a recent release to talk about this time, so looking a little bit in a different direction. Time-wise, that, that, that's kind of a transition. Truly. Now here at Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time, or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars and so do we. This episode, we're going to look at book three of Chuck Wendig's Aftermath series, Empire's End. Now, before we get too deep into spoiler territory, we'll give you our quick spoiler-free rundown. Just be sure to jump off at Tarkin's Arrogance. You know, this one... Number one, I really did not like the artwork in this one. Um, I don't understand why it was only two issues instead of six, and they probably should have just stopped with Dark Empire. <laughs> um, oh, wait! Oh, it's you actually another... had me going for a second. Uh. I'm like, wait... But the cover was pretty cool. What's he talking about? <laughs> it's nice. yet another instance of let's reuse an old title and confuse the hell out of people. But aside from calling it Empire's End, this one was a, an odd one for me. Um, you may recall that I really did not like the original Aftermath. I thought the story was meh. Yeah. But at least, you know, kind of serviceable doing its thing. Um, once you took everything else out of the picture, like the the issues with Wendig himself and the social media stuff, the controversy over the book, expectation versus reality, and the fact that it the original Aftermath book felt like it was written by a middle schooler who skipped a lot of their English classes uh, in terms of the, the phrasing, uh, the sentence fragments everywhere and that sort of thing. And then Life Debt was a lot better. I really actually enjoyed Life Debt. Uh, because it felt like it sort of got more to the heart of things. We knew the characters now, so we could see some development for them that would be interesting to see, and so on. So Life Debt was fairly strong. Um, and then this one, it's the third part of a trilogy. It's meant to sort of wrap things up. It's that rising and culminating action for the end of things. But I don't know. I felt like while the Battle of Jakku is interesting, and the book leaves us off on a good spot to sort of say, and this is the state of the galaxy now to sort of set things up for later. And it's good to see certain characters see their arcs finished and get some good character moments. It was somewhat exciting at points, but it felt like this was a book that was overly long. It dragged out at points. And to me, I think the biggest thing was it felt like this book relied a lot on coincidence. Oh, this character's only way to move their story forward is to accidentally glimpse this other character from far away and decide to follow them. Oh, the only way to move this character's arc forward is it just so happens a member of this bounty hunting team is someone her aunt used to work with who was a buddy who we haven't seen in this era at all before. Hey, that works. Oh, this character is flying in a ship and so is this other one. Oh, of course in this giant battle, those two are the ships that'll come together and almost blow each other up. 
it was a it felt like a, there were a lot of key moments that without those moments the story could not have been propelled forward but many of those moments relied on coincidence or contrivance to happen now you may be able to sit back and say well it was just the will of the force that that happened but i, I don't know i feel like it's it's poor not really writing it's, it's like almost like poor outlining <laughs> to not have less contrived ways of certain key points in your story's progression to happen. I think from a writing standpoint, it would still, it, it's windig as he was in Life Debt. He, it's not spectacular, but it's not the mess that it was back in the original Aftermath, which really needs a subtitle, frankly. And, you know, he's he's still writing in present tense. He's not writing as much with the sentence fragments, or when he does, it sounds much more like a narrator narrating things uh, and providing, in some cases, commentary on things, which sort of works. But I don't know. I think this works as the third part of a trilogy. I'm not sure how strong it would stand by itself. And even for a third part of a trilogy, it's got some it's got some issues. Like we we were built up in the original book, right? Here's these members of this team. Second book, here's the members of the team going forward and let's move their character arcs in interesting uh, directions. Now let's go to this book. Some characters get arcs that continue. Other characters are basically non-existent. Like, after all the time spent with Jom back in Life Debt, yeah. I expected Jom to show up in this book for more than, like, five pages. And to have his fate revealed for where he is when the story is over... Revealed by some other character speaking like off screen, sort of, uh, as opposed to it actually being that we see what's going on with the character. I don't know. There's, It's one of these books that you're going to read the first time and get caught up in the action and be like, woo, and so Aftermath ends. Cool. But then when you stop and actually look back and try to analyze what you just read and sort of pick it apart and think about what what worked, what didn't, what the strengths were and the weaknesses were, yeah, the weaknesses it has are pretty are pretty big. That's not to say it's one that I wouldn't recommend. I would say if you read Aftermath and Life Debt, definitely read this. And I think between this and Life Debt, they together are strong enough that you should suck it up and read Aftermath 1, even though it's not that great, so that you can then get to these, which are much better books. But it just, I don't know. Like if I had to put this on a on a ranking of 1 to 10, if Aftermath was like a 3 or a 4, and Life Debt was probably about an 8. I would say this one is probably a 6 to a 7. It, it didn't quite rise up to the level of Life Debt, but it was still leaps and bounds better than the first book, which, as I'm fond of saying and quoting from Dennis Miller, was like being valedictorian of summer school. <laughs> That's good. See, for me, I, I, think, I think I'd go a 6. You know, I agree with a lot of what you said. I think for me, you know, you, you mentioned it being overly long, and... You know, the interludes worked in the first book to a degree, I guess, as distraction. Uh, the second book, they worked to a degree as part of the storytelling. Uh, but I really felt like most of it was just not needed in this book. I felt like when I got to those moments, whereas like in the second book and even the first book, sometimes I felt like the story was better in the interludes than it was the actual book. This time around, I felt like, yeah, the interludes, they brought little tidbits of things, but they kept distracting me from the overall story. Like this is a story more set up about Nora and her group. And yet I felt like they were the second string characters. I felt like they, it wasn't their story because there was just so much going on. You know, I, I, I think that's my overall biggest gripe here with this story is just, it was telling way too much and yet not telling anything. I, I think that's like my biggest issue all the way around. I, when I got the book, I was still finishing off catalyst. Uh, so I grabbed it. I was kind of flipping through it and 
I, I was, you know, I was about to battle Jakku, you know, I was looking there and I couldn't put it down. All of a sudden, I, next thing I know, I, I read the whole end of the book and I was like, oh my God, this, this is, this seems pretty dang intense. This seems pretty good. Uh, you know, you mentioned Jom and I thought, you know, there, there's some stuff with Jom there at the end that I was like, oh my God, this is so powerful. This is so hard hitting. Uh, and then I went back over it and it was the same thing. I was like, what the, what, what's going on with Jom? Like, so knowing what happens at the end of the book, like, like I get where Chuck was putting that character, but I was I was hoping for more. And so when I went back to the first half of the book, I found myself even more distracted. It was like the second half of the book was really good. The pacing seemed to be moving along really well, but the first half just drags and drags and drags. We're all over the place. I'm like, what the hell is going on here? And you know, you mentioned Chuck's writing style, and in the second book, I didn't have as much issue as I did the first one. Uh, but when I went back to the first half, I found the first half was such a slog. It was like reading the first aftermath all over again. So I was like, oh, that's right. I was listening to these in audiobooks. So I, I redid my Audible subscription so I could get this one. And I was listening to Mark Thompson do the narration, and I was having issues with the dialogue because... The way Chuck writes, though, he'll be, you know, dialogue, dialogue, internal thought, dialogue, dialogue, internal thought. And the way Mark Thompson was reading it, I couldn't quite pick up on when the internal thoughts were happening. So sometimes I thought like Ray Sloan, when she was talking to other individuals, would be kind of a B.I. Because I was like, man, like she's really throwing stuff. She's throwing some shade at these guys. But then I was then I busted open the book and I'm reading while I listen to the audiobook, And then I was like, oh, OK, yeah. And I found that, like, that's really my preferred way of reading Chuck Winding is with the audiobook doing the reading for me because I kept getting hung up on little things and going back and rereading sentences because I was just like, wait, how is this supposed to come across? And that was the issue I had with the first book. But again, once I got to the second half of the book, that kind of died down a little bit, which makes me very interested in Chuck's writing style because it seems like throughout this entire trilogy – it seems like some parts of it were well thought out and other parts were just added in after the fact. Like, oh, this would be kind of cool to do. And there were a lot of really cool to do moments. Uh, then there were things about this book that kind of made me pause. I mean, there were phrases like there is no dark side showing up in this book. Uh, we have Sith spirits that are ordering people around. I'm like, wait, what? I thought canon was moving away from this legend stuff. Like, and there were a lot of things like that where on one hand I was interested. There was another part of me that was kind of bummed because I'm like, these are the things that when they did it in legends, people were griping about, people were pissed about, people were talking down about legends for, we're bringing this back into canon. Like, so there were things like that that jumped out that, that it piqued my curiosity. But again, it wasn't really helping the overall tale of the story. I, I actually I found Gallius Rax's character was probably one of the more interesting ones. Ray Sloan should have been more interesting, but they kept breaking her story up so much that I was just completely lost by that point. There were also a couple moments where where Chuck faked out the audience. Uh, and, it, and when I was listening to the audiobook, I honestly had thought like the book had jumped forward really far. And so I, I pulled out the book. And that's where I realized I needed to have the book out at the same time because I was like, wait, jazz is here? What the heck's going on? And then I find out after the fact they weren't there. It was all part of the narration kind of throwing me off. But there were a lot of moments like that. I don't know if you had issues like that, but man, there were a lot of times where I would stop and be like, what the force? Go back and reread it. There was a lot of rereading with this one and not necessarily in the best of lights. You know, you mentioned a couple of things that uh, one I disagree with, actually, and another that I think is a pretty good observation that I hadn't really thought of, but was definitely true. One that I disagree with would be the interludes. 
I feel I do feel like the interludes in this case broke up a story that was moving along fairly well by itself. Like with the original aftermath, you need the interludes to get a sense of what the galaxy is is going through. Uh, to set up different concepts within the post-Return of the Jedi galaxy, and frankly, because the main story was not all that interesting. In Life Debt, they still kind of work, but I think it's because there's uh, there's a focus in Life Debt within the characters where it doesn't feel like you're bouncing around too much between too many different groups in this ensemble cast in yeah. terms of where they are and what they're doing. In this book, yeah, I do think that the interludes are more of a distraction than they are beneficial because the characters are so split up in so many different places at different points of the book that you're already having to keep track of a lot of different characters. Now, here we are in a situation where you're also getting these interludes that are interrupting. It reminds me, to some extent, of some of the recent stuff I've read by Kevin J. Anderson. Like, I'm a big fan of his Saga of Seven Sons, and right now I'm reading the follow-up to that, the Saga of Shadows. And prior to that, I read through the entire Dune Saga, both the Frank Herbert stuff and the stuff that Anderson wrote with Brian Herbert. And what happens is he writes these giant galaxy-spanning stories with a cast of almost 100 characters by the time it's all over with, probably, that we need to be keeping track of if you're counting all the books, say, in a trilogy or in a novel series. They may disappear from book to book. Some may die. Some may be new ones introduced later. There's a lot of characters to keep track of. So every time you jump to a new chapter... You're jumping to another character that may be doing something completely different than the last chapter or the next chapter, and a lot of times you need kind of a recap, and he's kind of heavy-handed with it, but a recap of what we already know about this character because there's the thought that, well, you haven't seen him for ten chapters. We may have forgotten what was going on the last time we saw them or some of the, the character traits. Because there's just so many to keep track of. It's like this book spreads out its ensemble cast that works well as different factions and different teams, breaks those teams up and spreads them out so far that there's already a lot of different things to keep track of and things for him to hit from chapter to chapter yeah. that we don't really need those interludes because they're just adding another thing into the mix that's keeping us from getting on with the main tale. But I think having had them in the last two, it would have been weird not to have them here. Yeah. And it is nice to see that at least some of them, even ones going all the way back to the first book, actually do get payoff here. Because there were some characters we saw in interludes back in Aftermath that we then saw again in Life Debt, and now we're seeing continue here, or that we saw in Life Debt that continue here. So in a sense, we're getting more information about those situations, more resolution, although it's funny what we'll get in when we get into the uh, the spoiler territory. The They've been setting up all the orphans in the last three books for this kind of <laughs> response. But in that sense, I think that they, that they work in that they were necessary... And at least they finished up those things. So I think the interludes wound up being, by and large, a good thing for the trilogy, not necessarily great for this book. And the other thing you said was that it's not really the story of Nora's team. And I don't think I would have put it that way initially, but you're right. I mean, this is a book where the primary characters are the same ones we saw basically back in Life Debt, and yet they're so scattered out, so many of the team members get so little time, screen time if you want to call it that within this, and there's so much time taken up by the interludes, what's going on with Rax to some extent, though he's still one of those types of characters, and all the political maneuvering back in the New Republic to even get the New Republic to be willing to battle at Jakku, which is a wrinkle on that that I had never heard of before. It's kind of an interesting thing to think that we always thought they just went into battle and it turns out there was a political battle to even get engaged in the battle in the first place. But so much other stuff is going on and the characters are so spread out and spread so thinly that, yeah, this book, even though they are the main characters, doesn't really feel like it 
focuses on them. Like, they're there and they're doing their thing, but they're right there alongside everybody else. And a lot of times what they're doing, I'm not going to say it's not as interesting because it depends on the part of the book you're looking at. But a lot of times, like, we may be looking at what's going on with the New Republic, and here's Mon Mothma doing this thing that's consequential. Here's Leia doing this thing that's consequential. Uh, here's these political things happening that are consequential. And chapter to chapter, those usually feel like things are being propelled forward. But then there are times with the, with the supposed main characters of the book that it's like, and this is the chapter where they're walking. And this is the chapter where they find a vehicle so they're not having to walk. This is the chapter where they spot somebody from far away and keep walking. And so on. <laughs> Uh, like, for being the main characters, they don't seem like they have as much to do as the film characters in a lot of points in the book. It's it's just a weirdly constructed work. And, yeah, I don't know, it's almost like it, all three of the Aftermath books, while being part of it, it they're, they're a lot like, um, what were they going to call it, Empire and Rebellion? Yeah. Like, it was kind of a trilogy, but not really, because they were all very different books in their content, but they were supposed to have an overarching theme. It's more like they flipped this around... And we've got this overall story arc that goes through all three books, but thematically, approach-wise, writing style-wise, um, each book feels very different from the other one in terms of the way that it handles the storytelling. So it's it's an odd one. I'm not going to say it's a bad book. It's just yeah. an odd one. Yeah, I mean, and that's kind of where I'm at, too. Like, I enjoyed the story, and, and I found, like, you know, while the interludes threw me off at time and broke up the story. I kind of almost wanted the interludes in their own tales of the, you know, a galaxy far, far away. I mean, they were, they were very interesting so much so that I would, I would constantly find myself kind of like, man, I kind of want to go back and find out more of what's going on with Lando or, you know, like little things like that. But I don't know. I mean, I felt like they distracted more in this book than they did in the other ones. Isn't it nice though, that this book actually remembered that Lando existed. Yes, that is true. And Lobot. I was I was honestly kind of like shocked. I'm like, wait, Lobot's actually got a personality again? This is kind of cool. It's like, I know Lando was busy with all the stuff going on in the Uprising video game, but it's nice that he actually existed in this book and had something to do. Lando is, again, kind of forgotten. But I guess that's just in keeping with The Force Awakens, where Lando was nowhere to be found. Yeah, one last thing I want to say in the spoiler-free section here is, again, one of the things I do like a lot about Chuck's writing style is the dialogue between the characters. Uh, you know, there were – you could take, like, almost any two characters from Nora's group and put them in a room, and eventually you're going to get some great dialogue. Um, even if it's just one of them with somebody else. I mean, they're they're all written very funny, witty. I like that. Uh, and I think that that's also part of where I felt like the interludes distracted because there were times where I just I kind of wanted to follow them. In some ways, this book series kind of feels like the New Jedi Order, which is an odd statement because like the New Jedi Order was like a series of books and yet one book series all at one. I mean, it was a book series that was collected of duologies, uh, trilogies, and standalones, and yet it acted like a whole big one. And this one is kind of very similar. It felt like a bunch of little stories, but instead of where the New Jedi Order's main focus was, you know, the Solo and the Skywalker family, this one was more about what's going on with Ray Sloan, Gallius Rax, and Nora Wexley. Uh, so 
it was just weird. It was just, it was like so much was going on all at once that it really made it hard to digest. And I think you said at the beginning where it's upon the digestion where you're kind of going back over it going, wow, how do I feel about this book? Because there's just so much going on. There's a lot to process. And I think for me, a lot of the things that really jumped out weren't so much the story aspects, but the little things that they were bringing in, little names of things, you know, bringing in a character so we could see where their background was, finding about certain bounty hunters showing back up, uh, the things going on with the Force, the dark side of the Force. And, I mean, you know, we talk about Empire's End. There is a little, and, and I, I, I got to admit, I was evil. I trolled the internet with this. When I got the book and I was reading through that back part, there's a part where one character mentions that Palpatine's going to be coming back in a new body. And then they, they actually say it's a joke. But I purposely hid that part of it and put it up there just to watch people freak out. I mean, it was like, wait, they're actually, oh, oh, okay. I mean, he was quick about telling it. It's just a joke. Like, oh, okay. It is Empire's End. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I, on the one hand, like with the title, I, I get it. Like, I think it probably serves better for this story than it did actually Empire's End in Dark Empire. Uh, cause that one just felt like it was just like a continuation. I was like, oh, well, we're going to throw the, the title Empires in so we know, like, this is it. This, we're done. But yeah, I mean, there was a lot of themes I felt like that were in Legends that have kind of come back to a degree. Uh, you know, the aspect. Yeah, I felt like Ray Sloan was kind of like the Vision, or uh, I think that's how you say his name, that Han was chasing down in Courtship of Princess Leia. Uh, you know, like, like the one guy in charge, but not quite in charge. There were these sentinel droids that looked like Palpatine, sounded like Palpatine, had a proxy kind of feel to them that they didn't tell us how many of them were out there, but they do allude to the fact that there are still some of them out there and some of them are sentient. Right. You remember where those came from though, right? No, I was, that's what I was trying to think about. They're, they're the ones from Shattered Empire. They're those like Imperial Guard looking things with the face of Palpatine playing on a holographic screen like, like okay. the, the, the Chancellor or whatever her name is, is droid representatives in Gears of War 4. Okay. See, I immediately, I, I thought of Proxy from The Force uh, Unleashed, and I thought it was great because Chuck had put it in there talking about how it was, it was Palpatine by Proxy, and I was just like, wait, did he do that on purpose? That's kind of slick. <laughs> so there were moments like that where I was probably giving Chuck a lot more credit than he deserves, or Chuck's doing a good job, and I'm, I'm failing to give him as much credit as he needs. So I, I'm still on the fence there. And I think, really, at the end of the day, it's that first book... Uh, that's the one that really taints everything for me when it comes into this because it was such a hard transition from what I was used to to his style. Uh, you know, not everyone had that issue. So, you know, if you didn't, kudos for you, you were able to enjoy this book. But I do know that there were other people out there that had the same issue and the same reaction that I did. And ours was the more common reaction. So I, I did have moments of that with this story where I was kind of like, okay, it seems like we're getting back into that zone. But I think the interludes worked to break that up because when we got to the interludes, they, they did. They felt like they were their own little unique stories. Again, I feel like they could have been in their own tales and it would have worked. We've analyzed their attacks, sir, and there are spoilers. Should I have your ship standing by? Evacuate? In our moment of triumph? I think you overestimate their chances. So consider that your spoiler warning, Beyonders and Sentients of All Ages, because here we go on another adventure... Beyond the Films. For the first time in a generation, democracy has been restored to the galaxy. Although, reeling from a crippling Imperial attack, the New Republic has managed to drive the remnants of the Empire into hiding. 
Still, the threat of continued violence will always remain while the war persists. On the remote planet of Jakku, far from Republic eyes, the once secretive Gallius Rax strives to rebuild the crumbling empire in his own image. But his plans may soon be challenged by former Grand Admiral Ray Sloan, who seeks to destroy Rax and reclaim her empire from his dark machinations. Unaware of Rax's plot, Nora Wexley and her crew continue to pursue any information that could lead them to the fugitive Sloan. Convinced that Sloan holds the key to the Empire's defeat, Nora's search brings her closer and closer to Rax's hidden army. For on Jakku, the Empire prepares to make its last stand where the fate of the galaxy will be decided. Right, which leads us into a story in which we see the embodiment of all that is wrong with the Force, all that is horrible in the universe, and that which drives fandom apart will appear. Yes, folks, Jar Jar Binks returns in this book. <laughs> I love the fact that when he had mentioned that, people thought he was trolling, and it turns out he was being legit. Yes, this is true. So let me get that one out of the way. It's a non-sequitur kind of thing almost to start with, but it's it's one of those things that like when people asked me you know, about spoilers for this book, that was, the, that was what I would tell them. Like, it wouldn't even be like, here's the thing about everything else. Jar Jar's back, bruh. That he does manage to bring Jar Jar back in a way that actually I think worked well. I mean, it's it kind of makes sense for the character. It's 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 weird because it's basically the end of the orphans story that we've been getting in interludes since the first aftermath, and basically it was all build up to they're gonna wind up on Naboo and meet Jar Jar. Okay. There's a part of me that's like, okay, it's nice to know whatever happened to the character. On the other hand, there's a part of me that sits back and says, and this also kind of closes off possibilities of us ever finding out more about what happened to the character and having it turn out to be something super interesting as opposed to being very mundane. Because it's very mundane the way it's handled here. It's kind of like, well, he's just Jar Jar. He got kicked out again, and now he's basically a clown, but okay. So I guess it depends on... Uh, Your interpretation, that would be a question of, would you have liked to see something more interesting for Jar Jar's eventual fate, or are you just happy to get his eventual fate? Um, See, and when I think about that, I'm like, I want to know the people that love Jar Jar, you know, because like, I I was not a fan of Jar Jar, so of course, if you talk to those people, I'm automatically labeled a Jar Jar hater, but I, I found it was fitting, so I'm curious for those that love Jar Jar, was that a disappointment to you and or another nail in the coffin of what? the the real world thinks of that character. Uh, most people do not like Jar Jar. I've got cousins and stuff that they were young kids. They absolutely love Jar Jar. So I'd be very curious to find out, you know, if that was a letdown for them. Like, you know, hey, we, he came back, but we just we had to hate on him one last time. Like, but for me, I found I found it was very fitting. I found that that was a perfect uh, way for him to kind of spend the rest of his life. Like, dude, look what you caused in the galaxy. Yes, you need to be a clown. That's right. I guess that, um, and it's kind of weird, like I'm looking at the, the little bit of notes that I took while I was just kind of sitting here thinking about things that I want to make sure to bring up, and they're very kind of scattershot. Oh, yeah. Because it's a relatively straightforward story. I mean, it's essentially, you've got the story that's happening with the New Republic, which is essentially uh, Leia's pregnant, getting towards the point where she's going to give birth to Ben, which does happen later in the book. You have the New Republic embroiled in switching capitals. Um, They're embroiled in the beginning of a political race to figure out who's going to be the next chancellor. And in that process, you finally see someone who is sort of a hardline, hardcore hawk, you might say, 
who is running against Mon Mothma and sort of the political machinations he's going through to try to undermine her and how the political back and forth with them winds up serving to help undermine getting the New Republic able to initially jump into Jakku at first, um, which leaves our, our other heroes kind of in dire straits for a little bit. And then, of course, on Jakku, we have Nora's team, which is winding up getting split up with some going back to the New Republic and others being there still on Jakku. And then Nora's pursuit of Ray Sloan, who is still traveling with Brenton Wexley, which was, of course, her husband who had been brainwashed and stuff um, to be part of that attack that we saw back in the previous book. You've got uh, Snap slash uh, Timon trying to get the support to go try to rescue her, which kind of plays into the New Republic storyline. You've got Gallius Rax taking part in the contingency and such and trying to sort of uh, set up the Empire in a, in a way that I think is kind of odd that we'll get into as a, as a separate point. And then you've got Ray Sloan trying to go after Gallius Rax and bring him down. So in a lot of ways, the storylines themselves don't have a lot of twists and turns or intricacies. They're just kind of there and they're moving forward in a very steady pace. It's just that you have multiple ones that can intersect with each other. Um, but there are elements of the story, little tidbits here and there that kind of make me sit back and go, huh. Like, um, like, and and I guess I'll, I guess we can bring up this one, the one that I mentioned with Gallius's is plan and everything and the contingency, because this is a big one. Palpatine's plan, the contingency, and what Gallius Rax has been up to this entire time. It makes some sense when we think of Palpatine and the Sith as being driven by essentially selfishness, and it's all about themselves. But there's a part of me that says this is a really ridiculous plan <laughs> what the f palpatine because his entire plan basically is well i'm going to set up these agents and such around the galaxy and i'm going to set it so that i have an agent who is essentially among other things handpicking these strong loyal hardline imperial officers so that when things go bad they can all rejoin together they will follow the quote-unquote first order which is survival i thought that was actually a cool way to give a name a reason why it's called the first order but they are going to be off kind of built rebuilding the empire but as for everything else about the empire bring it to a dramatic conclusion this massive confrontation from which the empire as we knew it will be destroyed because hey I'm the Emperor, says Palpatine, and when I'm gone, the Empire itself should be gone. Instead of resetting the pieces on the chessboard, just flip that effing thing over, kick the table out from under, cuss out the other player, and then set up a completely new game to play. Uh, which is sort of a way of taking his game analogy and twisting it in a way that's not quite the way he said it. But just this idea that instead of Palpatine wanting the Empire to go on, and handing it off to, you know, his subordinates or another dark side force user as his apprentice, like a Vader or whatever. But the idea that he wouldn't want the Empire to continue in his name and that when he dies, F it. Just everything can be flushed down the toilet. And in fact, he will help bring down his own Empire because he's not there to rule it so that something new and stronger can eventually rise. That doesn't feel like it's in keeping with what we've seen with the rest of Star Wars in many ways. Yeah. It's It maybe makes sense if the belief was that Palpatine as a Sith was, as in the Darth Plagueis novel in Legends, thinking he was going to find the secret to eternal life so there would never be a point where he would die. Uh-huh. But eventually he was going to die. So this great Sith empire that he's been trying to build and that has been the Sith plan for at least the last thousand years, 
He's going to get it, but he's only going to let it exist while he's around. And when he dies, again, F it. That doesn't make a whole hell of a lot of sense to me. And feels like it means that there's been a backbone of this arc. And I don't think this is just Wendy. I think this is a story group driven thing because it has to affect so many other things. Yeah. It just, it feels like it, it's like, we're going to do something completely different. But does it actually fit? The films, uh, the previous films, like not the new ones, but the previous films, does it fit what we've seen before? Does it fit what we expect of Star Wars? It's really going to come down to how they handle the rest of this interim gap between this story and The Force Awakens to give us more detail on this and see why it's supposed to build up to become what it is. Because basically what we've got here is it feels like Palpatine's like, screw it, I'm taking my ball and going home out of spite rather than out of some grand plan. Like, maybe he's telling himself, well, if we tear it apart, it will grow up even stronger. Except, that's not really it. It's more like he's just sitting back saying, that's what I'm going to tell myself, but really, I'm just a big freaking baby. <laughs> well, there's an angle of this that, that you haven't really touched on yet that I think leads to what you were saying about it being a story group-driven decision, is Palpatine was feeling some presence, some dark presence, and he was the only one that could feel it, and it was outside the galaxy. I mean, it hints that Snoke is that presence, but it's like, okay, did Palpatine know this presence, or was he just searching for this presence? And so if he doesn't know the presence, then is he basically handing his empire over to something that he doesn't even know what it is? Like, that was what really threw me off. I was like, wait, what? Like, for a moment, I was like, oh, wow, are they talking about the Vong? And then I was like, okay, no, they're probably talking about about Snoke. But yeah, that aspect of it made no sense. Like, using Jakku like you were to to wipe out both armies, that made some sense. But then to, to run off into the unknown regions, like, unless the plan was to go and do, like, the old Sith Empire from Legends where they purposely hid, pretended to die, and then rebuilt and came back later, which would make sense, but there was really nothing that alluded to that. Yeah, it it feels like, if we can use a modern political equivalent, it's, uh uh-oh, George W. Bush is out of office and the Democrats have just won with Barack Obama. Uh Uh-oh, well, fine, because the other side is now in power, we're just going to destroy the Republican Party from the inside, because don't worry, someday there'll be another Republican president and all will be well again. Ellipsis. Oh, (laughs) shit. It's Trump. (laughs) Right? As opposed to, because it's kind of like Palpatine. There's this gathering of the dark side out Uh. there and such. Unless he was somehow manipulating that and part of that, or or setting that up to help be the rebuilding of the Empire, just, it seems odd. It makes sense in that it's kind of like a, you know, you have World War I, we have the Central Powers losing, Germany, even though they didn't start it, being given the war guilt and basically being slammed and torn down, and that leading to a resurgence into Nazi Germany going into World War II that makes it uh, an even stronger thing coming back that is harder to fight against, etc., etc., and even more ideal, uh, ideal, ideologically excuse me, driven. But, I don't know, there, we need to know more about this plan, because what is revealed here really does seem... I mean, I mean, and maybe I'm alone. Listeners, you know, we have feedback episodes from time to time. You know, let us know what you think about this. But it just, it feels to me that Palpatine basically saying, you know, when you're going to lose the game, sometimes you just clear the freaking board and start over again. Just seems, it doesn't feel like it meshes with everything else. It may be that bias left over from Legends, but 
I'm trying to think of that and think of other things within canon so far that have led us to that belief uh, or to or that have hinted at this. And I don't really feel like there's much there. Yeah, they, they, they allude that he's one of those master tacticians and stuff, using the whole chess and the games and stuff, and he saw the galaxy as that. But yeah, there's definitely that, that disconnect, like, okay, what is it that he's holding back that Gallius doesn't know? Because there's clearly got to be one vital piece of information that he's holding close to the chess that he went down with the ship with that Gallius doesn't know about. Because yeah... It that's the aspect that doesn't make sense. Like you've gone to all this planning and everything. Like there's no threat out there in the galaxy unless Snoke is supposed to be the threat to Palpatine. Uh, you know, I mean, that was one of the angles where I was just like, huh, that makes zero sense. There's got to be something more here. Well, I mean, it's you don't win a game of chess by putting C4 on the bottom of the board and blowing it up whenever <laughs> you're losing. You don't? <laughs> you know, that's not how you win your game of chess. So I don't know. And it's made a little bit trickier because there are references, and I haven't gone through myself uh, to summarize it for the timeline yet, but as I recall, a lot of these flashbacks to the early days of Galley slash Gallius Rex, there are points at which Palpatine is referred to by titles that he doesn't have yet. Like, I think there's a point where he's referred to as a Supreme Chancellor when it doesn't make sense to refer to him that way. Uh-huh. And so on. So I'd have to go back and actually see it. That's what I've been, I've had a couple other people who are very timeline-minded come to me and say, am I missing something or is that just a screw-up? This is probably a, <laughs> a, a screw-up, I guess. All right, so, so there's that. The other thing I would bring up is Nora Wexley. Nora backslides in this book, it seems like. I like the character of Nora in that we have another flawed family relationship here. And it's not just a parent-child thing, or a husband-wife thing. I mean, we have a person who has put her dedication over everything else. Uh, she's, she's almost like a, a there-but-for-the-grace-of-God-for-Leia kind of situation, <laughs> right? Like, Leia, if she threw herself so completely into what she was doing and, and neglected her family, we could see her winding up in just as, as dark a position as Nora does here. Um, she makes a nice foil for Leia. But Nora started out the first book basically estranged from her son, who she basically just dumped so she could go and fight in the rebellion and and find uh, her husband slash his father. And she seems to come to the, re- the realization that she needs to be a better mom and she's going to be there for Timon. The second book, she's giving him more authority. They're working together better. Some of their issues have been resolved and it's Brenton coming back into the picture as a survivor of that winds up being brainwashed and all of the, what was happening on at that prison, that that sort of pushes more tension into the family that's driving them apart again uh, yeah. and causing issues with Tim and Nora in that sense. But again, you get to the point where it's sort of the, you know, we've got to find Brenton, you know, so they could be a family again, et cetera, et cetera. But it seemed like she's still, like she was driven by that, but she had still kind of learned her lesson, I've got to be a better parent, right? And then it's like in this book, revenge is everything, screw being a parent. Well, see, for me, that made sense because, you know, it was what happened with her husband, Barrett, Barrett, (laughs) Brenton, that that really pushed her away. She felt guilt for it. And I felt like that guilt overrode everything that she had learned in the first two books. I guess so. But it's kind of one of those, like, because I can sort of understand her. If this, if the idea is that the character is driven by revenge and the character is driven by trying to get Brenton back or seeing him as already gone and and killing the person that she deems as responsible, which is Sloane, although it's not exactly Sloane's doing, it makes sense that she'd be out there going to to try to take down Sloane and that she would have the motivations and sometimes the blind spots that she does within the book. But that's not taking into account 
timid. And the relationship that needed repairing there, the the revelation she'd had in terms of her relationship with him over the previous books. I mean, we're talking like, say, like, okay, well, I just dumped him again. And there are points where she's sort of thinking in her own head and within the narration about how bad a parent she's been in doing what she's doing. Yeah. And it's sort of like, I mean, I guess I'm glad that she at least recognized her own failings. And it made her a flawed character here so that you're kind of hoping she catches Ray. And you're also kind of, like Ray Sloan, kind of hoping that she doesn't. Uh-huh. Because you're kind of wondering what's going to happen when she does. And is she going to be able to pull the trigger? Is she going to wind up finding what she's looking for with Brenton? Is it possible that all this has been for nothing? Will the character pull herself down? Will she sacrifice herself and leave Timon without a mother? So her conflict... And her drive does add tension to the book for the character, but the entire time I'm reading it, I'm thinking, wow, you've forgotten everything about your son that you've developed in terms of your character over the last two books. You are a (laughs) horrible parent. I think she is probably the second worst parent in Star Wars, with Padme dying immediately after childbirth of a loss of will to live, being the second, or sorry, the top worst parent. In Star Wars, I don't I don't uh, count Anakin slash Vader because he didn't know we had kids for years. <laughs> that's that's true. See, for me, I kind of liked her beating up on herself because I when they had that moment where they show up at Jakku and the fleet's there and like like she's in that moment of like I don't have time to think and I don't have time to you know calculate the ramifications of my actions. I just need to act. And so when she jumped into that life pod and, and bailed on everybody like that, like I got where she was coming from, but at the same time I was kind of shocked. I was like, "Oh my god!" And, and I think it was Snap's point of view that really drove it home. He's like, "She's abandoning me again." I was like, "Yes, she is, dude. Holy crap!" Uh, but then Jazz, I think I think Jazz worked as a good foil for Nora because Jazz recognizes that she has rubbed off on Nora. That Nora is now starting to take more of a bounty hunter stance in a lot of the things she's doing. I mean, technically, they're basically independent bounty hunters that are going around and capturing people that worked for the Empire that may or may not have bounties on their heads. Uh, so I, I kind of felt like, you know, at that point, like it became all about Sloan. And she had forgotten everything else because, like, her rage, like, she had come to the grips of the dark side in a sense. Like, she was totally there, willing to sacrifice anything and everything. But it gets to that aspect, like you had said, about the coincidences. I mean, you know, the book starts out, we got Mercurial Swift. Uh, he gets captured by the group, and then he ends up escaping and deciding, well, he's going to set up a plan and capture them down at Jakku, and I'm thinking, boy, he got lucky that Jazz even got into the escape pod because she could have went back to Coruscant with everybody else. Like, there were so many coincidences right out the get-go. But I think, like, it it had to be Jazz because it played into that aspect of what was going on with Nora. Jazz was the one that recognized that Nora was slipping. Like, at that point, Nora could only pick up so much. Like, yeah, I'm failing my son, but she wasn't realizing, like, you're being driven by complete freaking rage and hate, and it's blinding you to everything logical right now. So it was like, for the first time, Jazz is the voice of reason. Uh, so I thought that was kind of a fun opportunity there. And I think, you know, we talked about Jom not being much in the story, I think it's Jazz's conflict with Nora and what's going on with her that makes her kind of, you know, she'll occasionally think about Jom. And I think that that's what, you know, I I mentioned it in the spoiler-free part. When we find out what happens with Jom, his end fate, like, I cried, right? Because I I hadn't read the first half of the book, so I was thinking, like, this is going to be some major thing. And then I went back and I'm like, 
oh man that's lame like 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 it would have been a cool way to go had he done more like he was so parked on the side and, and it, just that aspect of well everybody was needed to do this aspect here and john basically became just this foil for jazz to keep nora on point it was like that was kind of a lame twist there i was hoping for a little bit more speaking of jazz I feel like Jess, again, she was actually a relatively strong part of this. She needed to be there to be another of these foils for Nora, as you mentioned, like someone who can bounce off. And in a sense, she's become more driven by the team rather than her own interests, while Nora has gone the opposite direction. In this book, at least, that she's more driven by her own interests and not thinking about the bigger picture. Jazz struck me, there were two things in this book that, that stand out to me that, that just ring bells in my mind. Anytime that I think of Jazz in this book, one is the Holy Sith moment, which is the idea that she manages to free herself by banging her head repeatedly against a solid surface to break her horns off yeah. and use them to cut herself free. That struck me as kind of insane. I'm not sure how I feel about that. There's a part of me that's like, wow, that is you know grotesque and dark and holy crap. And then there's another part of me that, again, steps back and says, okay, but realistically, does that make sense? See, I thought it did because she had a pick key in one, but they took that from her. And she was like, well, I got a backup plan. I could just use the horns themselves. I was like, oh, she's got contingency plans. That's a total bounty yeah, hunter thing. I guess, but I mean, it's kind of like, I mean, it's, it's a part of her body, right? It, it's, I mean, granted, it's not quite the same because we don't have any bony protrusions that are just there with no skin or whatever over them. We don't have horns, but it strikes me as if it's someone like, I need a lock pick. I guess I'll break, I'll rip my own finger off and strip it of flesh and use some of the little bones in my finger as a lock pick because I know they'll be the right size. Oops. Yeah, I now am missing a finger. Granted, I guess it means less in a galaxy far, far away because she does say that they'll grow back. And even if they couldn't grow back, they're doing all kinds of stuff with severed limbs and stuff and whatnot in Star Wars anyway. But that struck me as kind of a yee kind of moment. And they keep, he keeps describing the way that like her head looks with the flesh and whatnot <laughs> at different points with the character that certainly gave her a different visual look. She's literally the only character in this book that had a visual look and description that stuck with me. That said, though, while that is kind of the dark whoa moment and a shocking moment that I was kind of surprised to see in a Star Wars book, then you've got, again, going back to the convenience thing, and I mentioned this earlier in passing without saying anything, any specific characters, but Imbo. This entire thing with Nora and Jas and a bunch of aspects of their journey completely falls apart if by sheer freaking accident, it didn't happen to be that in the team Mercurial Swift had put together with Dengar and such, if by chance... Imbo hadn't been part of the team because Imbo had worked with Sugi, who was uh, Jas's aunt, and she's able to basically convince him out of loyalty to her aunt to basically uh, give her a pass and at one point let her steal a ship. If Imbo had been more dedicated to his job, because it's not like we've ever seen Imbo in any way showing any kind of affection for anything other than his Anuba, because we really have only tended to see him in Clone Wars where he didn't get a chance to really have much depth to him or anything... If he had just said no, if he had stuck to the job like most bounty hunters in theory would or should and not thought about the personal connection, been more like Joss when we first met her, or if he had not been part of the team, Joss is absolutely screwed and so is Nora. And, and again, this falls under the level of, wow, that's an interesting, really unlikely coincidence that happens to serve the story. 
it's the it's the it's imbo ex machina to make this next aspect of the <laughs> of the story work. Well, see, and I had one like that too when Nora and and Jazz are, you know, first show up on Jakku. Nora tells Jazz to spin in a circle and point. I'm like, God. They had a 50-50 shot of going the wrong direction completely. Like, that could have backfired horribly. They, they died in the desert wandering around endlessly looking for food and water. Like, no, that would not have worked. Uh, I, I, one of the things that I kept having a hard time wrapping my head around, you know, is we live in an era where canon books, they jump from one time frame to another. So, you know, I read Bloodlines not too long ago. And the events of Bloodlines kept slipping into my mind. And I kept telling myself, wait, no, that hasn't happened. And yet... It felt like at times like Chuck might have forgotten that or he was trying to, to like write in some backstory of like, well, this is where she's going. But Leia seems to already be doing her damnedest to circumvent the New Republic Senate on almost every level. And I was thinking like, wait, no, okay, that hasn't happened yet. But it's just it's one of those aspects of Leia's character that really cracked me up. I mean, you know, she's a full on rebel. There's one point where she says She's talking to Han and she goes, look, Tatooine, Care of Doi, Dremsel, Horus, all worlds still in the thrall either of some imperial remnant or the criminal syndicates or gangs. Rebellion won. We've seen it. We've helped make it happen. But she's got a point. Like, I mean, she's not really ready to kind of play fair, kind of, you know, do the galactic thing, which is odd because she is someone that has served the Senate as a young age. But she's discovered that being a rebel is a better way to go about things. And she's already setting herself up to do her own thing. And it bloodline, like I felt like bloodline, that was the first time she was doing it, but clearly that's not the case. She's been doing it for a while. Yeah. And it's interesting the way that this story focuses in on uh, sort of the, the, the political commentary type thing. I don't think it should come as any surprise to anyone who has checked out any of his tweets or anything like that, that Chuck Wendig is decidedly left wing politically. Like, American left-wing, so liberal in that sense, in American political sense, a far Democrat kind of thing, to the point where it was both hilarious and mind-boggling to see some of his tweets around the time of the election and be like, wow, people really are coming unhinged. But it strikes me, it makes me wonder when this book was written. Like, when did he put the the storyline together for that aspect? Because basically throughout this book, you're getting this conflict between the idea of, well, we need to use the system the way it was designed to work. It is a republic. The people have representatives. They are going to make certain decisions. We need to wait for the will of the people. And in order to get what you want, like going to Jakku, we have to convince enough representatives that it is what is best for them to vote and give us a yes. We can't just do whatever we want. Whereas Leia's thing is constantly sort of finding ways to undermine things and basically do whatever she wants to get this done. Not so much as in Bloodline, but it is here. There's sort of this, you know, well, what are some ways to go around this? How do we just get this done? Because the system isn't working in our mind for what we want to do. And because we know the New Republic needs to go to Jakku, needs to be able to confront the Empire to get us the peace and everything that's already been established in this new continuity, we are looking at it as, well, uh, Mon Mothma's efforts to get a consensus to do what they want is good, Leia's impulse to try to get it done is good, but Mon Mothma's stature is kind of knocked down a little bit when she tries but doesn't wind up getting the support. Uh, and it reminds me, in a political analogy, again, I'm a social studies teacher for this, so this is what sticks in my head, is the difference between ruling the United States or governing the United States through Congress and laws or through executive actions. 
executive orders. And just saying, uh, as President Obama said, well, I've got a phone and I've got a pen, so we're going to get things done. And I'm just going to do executive order after executive order to get around Congress, which is exactly what the Democrats complained about Bush about, that the Republicans then complained about Obama about, and that now Trump is doing and the Democrats are complaining about Trump about. Constantly trying to make these in-runs around the system. And I, I, given some of the other things with Wendig, both outside the books and some in the books, it makes me sit back and wonder, when did he write this? Because if he was writing this during the election prior to Trump doing the executive actions over and over again, it would make perfect sense that here's a guy who's basically promoting the idea that, well, sometimes screw it, the system doesn't work, you got to go around it. Whereas I would imagine that it's kind of ironic now looking at that aspect of Leia as the heroic character wanting to avoid going through the system in light of Trump, because I'm sure right now he's going nuts over what Trump has been doing, which is essentially what Obama did, which is essentially what he is promoting Leia doing here. Given someone who wears his politics on his sleeve as much as Winding and as vociferous as he is, I'm really curious when this was written in relation to modern, recent American politics. But I know that's probably just me because that's just kind of my <laughs> sphere. Well, no, there is a definite political charge to this book. And at times it bothered me. At times I felt like I was back in the Bantam era, back with the Rogue Squadron books, because I love the Rogue Squadron books. What I hated about the Rogue Squadron books was the political squabbling of one Boris Fele and all the stuff that was going on between him, Leia, Mon Mothma, Akbar. Uh, see, I love that. That was my Ballywick. See, <laughs> now, now I use Ballywick for you. Oh, that was good. But yeah, for me, that was like, I, I kind of like, I just want to get past this. I want the galaxy to be stable. So like, I, I like the aspect that the crime bosses and stuff were teaming up to keep them from, you know, getting anywhere. That was kind of a cool aspect. But that back and forth stuff, like, but I, I keep drawing parallels, right? So Mon Mothma, like page 56, we're seeing like a different Mon than we did in Legends, where she was poisoned in that one. And this one, she's in a similar boat. You know, she had that assassination attempt. She can't close her hand. She's physically trying to be normal, yet still can't. Uh, you know, so she's holding on to power. The injury has affected her. We also have, what, there's the new separatist union, a new confederacy of corporate systems, and the pirates are going by a so-called sovereign latitudes. So you got, like, these political aspects. You know, I, I like the, the touch on uh, Battlefront, the book, where Leia mentions the K-10 plan to Mon Mothma, which is the battle evacuation code that they use to evacuate from Hoth. Uh, but there were things about this, too, that, that felt weird for me uh you know we were talking about waru showing up you know and the fact that they kept him as lumpy waru and and he takes the name waru later like that's something i kind of wish that they would have got away from that was always silly the whole you know what was chewy's first name before he became chewy you know like so, so i, I wish they would have left that behind but in this then there wouldn't be a first name because as a kid he's lumpy waru instead of lumpy warum so chewbacca could have just been chewbacca straight through Right? True. True. But I think for me, the saddest thing with that interlude on Kashyyyk is that Waru himself knows so little about himself, his family, Kashyyyk, and what it means to be a Wookiee. Uh, you know, having that taken from him, I mean, granted, you know, Holiday Special wasn't the best of things in the first place, but it did introduce us to these characters. We saw that he was living with his mom, his grandpa was there. So he wasn't a complete 
estranged orphan that didn't know much about himself. So that was an angle that I found really sad. And I found myself thinking similar with Han Solo because Han has always been one of the characters that I've loved in canon. I, you know, he was okay in Legends. I loved him in canon though. And this version of Han in canon now, I don't care for it. I don't like it at all. They keep playing him up to be this caged animal about to bolt. And I'm just, I don't know. I, I'm not a fan of that portrayal of Han. Like, I don't feel like he's, in a, in a sense, I feel like he's almost been victimized because he's not out able to do what he needs to do. And he's trying to be a good dad. And therefore, by being a good dad, he can't be the person he wants to be. And therefore, he just needs to be, Leia, you just need to let him go. Like, I, that version of Han I hate. I like the Han in Legends where he had kids and he pulled his head out of his butt and became a really good father. Like so that I'm having an issue with. But that's I don't I can't blame Chuck for that. I think that's the direction that this new canon has gone. Uh and it makes me think about the the recurring line about the Empire needs more children. And I was thinking about it, I'm like, and then they got Ben. Like, you know, you've got all these children and stuff and Leia's son is born in this time and in the end, the first order, they get Ben. Uh, and then there's also the aspect of the listening device. When that first came up, I immediately, I was thinking, ooh, is this going to be like Delta Source? Like, holy cow. Uh, and then you had mentioned the, the running mate that was going up against, uh, Mon Mothma. I think they're the Orishi, which the way that that species was described, the way their planet had, had taken, uh, you know, hits during the Clone Wars and stuff, I immediately got a Nagri vibe from them, you know, about their planet being toxified and that kind of stuff. But they were interesting in the aspect of, they're not a species that grows like there's a male and a female when they when they reproduce each one the male and the female has one male one female kid and that is it the parents then die so the species doesn't continue to grow and i was like trying to think like how would that work like was that like an engineered species like you can't just randomly have them or like did something happen that they were poisoned and they could only then do it that direction like that was an interesting little species but it was these little things that i found had the most interest for me. Those little tiny little tidbits, these throwaway things. Like when we get to uh, Tashu and we get to the orphans on the planet that are doing their little thing with the lightsaber and stuff, they actually, and I have it down here word for word, but they flat out talk about the dark side and force ghosts. Let's see. It's page 256. Alkylites of the Beyond are having dreams of Sith, both ancient and recently living. So recently living, that he has to be Palpatine and, and Vader, I'm assuming, because they were the only ones that were recently living, unless we're counting Maul. Uh, and then 257, the Alkylites are following the orders of, and this is the quote, those who have died and who wait beyond the veil and whose orders, unquote, that they follow. So they're being flat out spoken to in some form or fashion by ancient specters. And it also says those ancient specters are the ones who give them the dreams after all. I'm like, holy crap. Then you've got the aspect of these collected items, these masks and stuff are being charged with the living uh, forces dark side. And when the girl puts it on, she has a profound physical reaction. I'm like, these are those elements that legends played with that. And I, and I say, you know, I used to always talk about film only fans would hate. They hated these type of things because we're like, this is not the way the force works. And yet we're bringing these things back in. I mean, rebels, we had the night sisters, uh, possessing Kanan and Sabine on Dathomir. Granted, they were like, oh, well, because of their magic, they're, they're located, can only stay on Dathomir. But we don't know what's going on with the Sith. But the fact that we've got Sith force ghosts when that was something I thought we were shifting away from, that was like, holy cow for me. Well, and speaking of people who are 
are, are, are there, just odd tidbits they throw in. Guess who's back, 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 back again, again, again. Don't use the wrong pronoun or you're a bigot. Um, <laughs> Eliotti is Not back. Not the Yellow Aces? Oh, no. what? He again brings back Eliotti, which I'm hoping is a character designed to sort of set up you know, the way that other parts of the galaxy are dealing with the end of the Galactic Civil War. Uh, how these societies and these groups of people who are going to sort of bring themselves back together and sort of set up a new galactic order, in essence, that maybe doesn't really care about the New Republic or does but lives on the fringes of it and does their own thing. Um, I'm hoping it's sort of like that, kind of like what they were trying to set up with Evan Verlaine back in the Princess Leia comic as this is what this chunk, in that case the Alderanian refugees, what they're going to manage to do um, to survive and such. But this was one that drew a lot of criticism back in the previous book because this is the character that uses the gender-neutral pronouns. Um, the jure, the g kind of stuff. And I can't tell if he's confusing the issue, if he's trying to just flip a big middle finger to everyone who griped about the gender-neutral pronoun thing that confused people because it's not a very well-known gender-neutral pronoun, or if it's like uh, what a friend of mine was thinking, which was that there was a slip-up in the previous book where jure was referred to as her, at one point, and this is Wendig trying to sort of retcon his way out of that being a mistake. But we get another interlude with that character, which is an interesting interlude. But it gets to a point where it's talking about what comes next, and it's constantly stuff like noticing the stairs coming your way, and so on. Still using the gender-neutral pronouns, but then you get to the last paragraph of the interlude, which is essentially examining the thoughts of this character including references to the character's own self that says, Outside, the void lights up with fire as the attack begins. The Star Destroyers do not have a chance. Soon the New Republic will have a present from His Highness, Her Glory, His Wonder, Her Luminous Magnificence, the Picaroon, the Plunderer, the Pirate Ruler of Wild Space, the Glorious Knave, Eliodi Maracabana. Or how you're supposed to say the last name there. So, I, I, and again, I... I asked this on Facebook trying to figure out what the correct term would be. Unless this character, I think the term they're looking for is gender fluid, who essentially decides what gender they are on the basis of circumstance and never pins down male or female, either detached or attached to physical traits. I'm not sure what Wendy was trying to do there, but it's, I don't know, that was even more throwing people off. And I've seen more people being like, what, what? over that than over really any other characterization within the book. Because I, I mean, we thought he was trying to make a political point using the gender-neutral pronoun and finally give us a character, though some disagree with the inclusion, but having a character who was not gender binary or whatever you want whatever term you want to use, who is part of sort of that broader gender identity debate, actually being in a Star Wars book, which for once allowed people who fit that within modern American and other society to say, you know what, there's a character like me. Just like Shinjir is a major character who happens to be gay. We've got a character for gay Americans and gay other readers to see and say, hey, finally there's someone who is more like me in that particular sense in this book in Star Wars. Now I'm represented. But then he does that in the last paragraph, and I'm, I don't know, maybe I'm just 
not up on the terminology enough, but it seems like that last paragraph is like undermining what he was doing with the character the entire rest of the time he was using the character. Why would a character specifically referred to constantly in the narration and in their own thoughts as she, zhir, or some gender-neutral pronoun, all of a sudden in that one paragraph repeatedly not only use his and her and such, but go back and forth and back and forth between them. I don't know what Chuck Wendig was trying to do there, but it feels like he almost undermined his own character approach to some respect there. Like, if he was trying to do be inclusive, am I missing something? And that was another mentality that could be considered inclusive? Or am I, is it just that he was trying to poke people in the eye? Because that does seem the kind of individual that Windig is, that he was trying to do a Trump and he got annoyed by something. <laughs> so he's sending out, you know, the, the, the tweet saying something is sad, so sad. I don't know. I don't know what he was doing. But again, it's another of those things where there's these odd points within the book where you just kind of sit back and go, what was he thinking? And not in a, wow, that was stupid. He's nuts. How could he possibly have done this? But like, literally, what was he thinking? Like, what was the rationale behind this particular thing? Yeah, quit trying to make fetch a word, Chuck. <laughs> I, you know, you mentioned Sinjer and, and his being gay. And by now, you know, it's, it's no question. Uh, you know, remember when we, we reviewed the first book, I was like, oh, you know, he could have went anyway. He could have been lying to her. Uh, but I thought it was kind of funny that Sinjir, you know, he's having these issues with Condor. And I like that Condor is like the new Ghent of the, the New Republic. He's like the big slicer guy. But Sinjir's broken it off with Condor after the last book. And he's kind of like, you know, he misses him. He's trying not to miss him and stuff. But it's when he is witnessing Han and Chewie. And he's seeing the bond of brotherhood with those two that he realizes, I'm in love with Condor and I need to get back to him. Like, <laughs> there was that moment. And then I think Sinjir is probably one of my favorite characters because, like, there's a, a part where he's talking about getting drunk. And, like, and later he refers to it again with John. He's like, hey, isn't this ironic? Like, I'm stone cold sober and you're the drunk one. But he goes, he's talking earlier to, I think it's Snap, and he goes, I am a professional. I don't get drunk. I get pickled. And I'm just like, the, the phrases like that that he says, I think this Sinjir is probably one of my favorite characters. So by the end of the book, when we find out that Mon has chosen him to be one of her advisors, I was like, oh, that's cool. That is great. Because I would love to see him show up in more stories. I'd love to see him be a more back ground character in a lot of the political aspects just to have his humor involved like there's something about him in that regard that i absolutely love and then there is a moment during the raid where he has a wash uh moment from serenity where he's like i am the brightest beam of light i am the brightest beam of light i just i don't know there's something about this character that i really got a kick out of oh yeah that shinji sinjir is awesome um shinji i keep wanting to add an h to it sinjir is definitely my favorite character out of this this trilogy of books. They managed to create a character who is interesting and complex and it was sort of at war with himself, has a real character arc that actually changes the character significantly from point A to point B. And along the way, he does have his missteps and you're not quite sure where he's going. Um, the fact that he is a gay character, while I've seen people say, oh, there shouldn't be a gay character in Star Wars, I've sat back and kind of been like, okay, but you realize that, you know, people are people and that's the way some people are in real life, therefore shouldn't that be represented within the books in some form? It's still one character out of not all that many, and granted, this trilogy has more gay characters in it than most Star Wars books do, but Than still, all of Legends combined? Uh, probably all of Legends combined. <laughs> but isn't that, you know, kind of a sign of the times and a matter of, of representation, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. But, I mean, his his... The fact that, you know, you get to the end of the last book, right, and it's, you know, it's the, the you know what, I was trying to be a better guy, but you've hurt my friends, yeah. so screw it. 
and, you know, torturing to get the information he needs and seeing the character sort of becoming this political advisor, caging those urges. But now you think, I mean, this guy is so cutthroat, this could work well for politics. But he's got, you're right, some of the best lines in it. So he's... um. There's a point at which he's going to be, he's going to go have a conversation or whatever, and uh, they're talking about a you're talking about Wartal's uh, that's the the opponent to Mon Mothma, uh, their the culture and whatnot, and he says you know uh, he was using it to gain political advantage, not a criminal one. The Orishian that's the the species are almost overly noble, driven mad by an aggressive sense of honor. Something, something sacrifice, something, something (laughs) stern father telling his son how hard it is out there. I do despise how they name themselves though. Tolwar Wartal, Vindar Darvin, Tim Tam Tam Tim. You'd think they'd be more original. And Condor said, it's cultural. Well, that's no excuse. And Condor finally says, go, deliver your fruit. Be as polite as you can manage and don't start an intergalactic incident. It's like, those I leave to job. Uh, Condor says, have fun at work, honey. You know, and then... uh you get the the great line from Sinjir, uh, this great little paragraph of his, which is, you know, thank you, doll. And if you call me honey again, I'll rip that beard off your face, swath by swath with miserable pinching tugs. Like, you're such a romantic. <laughs> my heart is a dry nest of dead birds. <laughs> I'm like, that, that line right there, my heart is a dry nest of dead birds there on page 363. <laughs> I think that may become the opening quote of of the next edition of the Star Wars Timeline Goal, I'm telling you. I mean, that nice. is a fantastic quote. But it's the kind of character that Sinjir is. And in a lot of ways, he's the character that brings a lot of life to this story because the other characters kind of do their own thing and don't get a lot of comedic moments or moments where you're like, <laughs> but Sinjir does. He's he's like the, the super, super dark character, but he's yeah. also in many ways the comic relief. No, he is. He's definitely one of my favorites. And see, when I when I close my eyes, I see Neil Patrick Harris. Like he did such a good job <laughs> as Barney that I'm just like, he's my go-to gay dude. Like I'm just like I love Neil Patrick Harris. So like he became my Sinjir. So in chapter 29, when Sinjir's talking to the Chancellor, Mon Mothma, no, I'm sorry, what? I said, no, Sinjir. The Chancellor says, oh, I see. We must have a communications problem. I'm not Changillion. And though I believe we share some the same crispness of wit, there must be some crucial language barrier I'm coming up against. I have to assume that because of my very good deeds rendered in service to the New Republic, that surely, surely, when I ask if I can go to Jakku to help my friends, your only answer would be an unqualified, yes, Sinjir, absolutely, Sinjir, please take this medal and also this bag of money, Sinjir. Like, it's these little internal dialogues that Sinjir has that just have me laughing my butt off. And, and you put Sinjir with Jom, it's great. You put him with Snap, it's great. You put him with Jazz, it's great. You put him with Ribbonora, it's awesome. Like, I, this character, I want more of. And, like, I liked other characters that were gay in Legends. Was it uh, Bevan Lauren or... Uh can't exactly think of what his last name is. He's the Mandalorian guy that worked with Boba Fett. Or Boba Fett. Yeah, it was Boba Fett. In the New Jedi Order, he had a husband, and, and they played that way down. So, like, having this character be such a lively character, it's just so great. I love that to death about the character. Now, speaking of characters and whatnot here, um, I will say that one of the things that surprised me to some extent was... We're kind of where the characters are ending up here. Now, one, we've got the Jom thing, and yeah, Jom's situation, I get what he was going for, but it was kind of a letdown that it's, we're going to give Jom a heroic ending, but we're only going to see him once and then talk about him again later. So we have a character who was big in the last book, you expect to be a big part of this one, but instead, he shows up, gets told, you know, we need your help. (laughs) 
He goes to join the fight, dies off screen, essentially, and then we're told about his sacrifice later. That was kind of an interesting hit and an interesting way of interpreting the idea of the little things that happen in war while you're looking in some other direction. Yeah. But at the same time, I was kind of shocked that they would take him out of play that way. But then again, in the first book, he was barely there, right? He just dives in, takes a small part in the last battle, and all of a sudden it's like, yeah, yeah, you're on our team, sure, why not? And becomes a member of the team for the second book. Jom, in a sense, felt like an afterthought back in the original Aftermath, and now he feels like he was in many ways an afterthought for Empire's End. But to have Bones removed from play, Bones destroyed, uh, to have Brenton die, I think both of those things I kind of expected because... You need to be able to set Timonoff on his own way. You can't have a character like Bones running around for other authors to use constantly because it would just be an odd fit in many ways. And Brenton, after what he did, after what he had gone through, to have him come back home for a happy ending as a it was either that there's that option or he could be the noble sacrifice. It'd be one or the other. And noble sacrifice seemed to have made more sense and been the more obvious choice. And, of course, it now frees up Nora to hook up with Wedge, which was something they were building throughout the previous book. Uh, but the one that shocked me as far as the character fates and who lives and who dies, was, and I guess to some extent the fact that Gallius Rax died was not a huge surprise to me because he's been set up as the big bad. He has to somehow be taken down a few notches, if not taken out of play completely. But the fact that Ray Sloan survived really threw me for a loop. I never expected that Ray Sloan, with this whole idea that, like, she is the Empire... She embodies what it was. Rax embodies what it's going to be and is essentially like the proto-First Order guy. Always made me think of this as those sort of two camps within the Imperial framework. So there's no way that Ray Sloan could ever actually be part of the First Order. There's no way that Ray Sloan goes off with Rax's plans and winds up in charge of that empire or a part of that. Surely she's going to die trying to stop him, and that'll be her noble sacrifice. And the First Order will essentially come back together with the remnants of the empire out in the unknown regions like they were going to, but without Rax and without Sloane as a moderating voice. But no. Sloane survives, follows the information as provided by Rax, and winds up going out and joining the other Imperials in the creation of the First Order, using the term First Order for the first time, referring to the act of survival, and even winds up going there, and we find that that one Star Destroyer, or Super Star Destroyer, in the previous book that she noted was unaccounted for, the Eclipse, which is not a massive Super Star Destroyer, like a super, super, super duper Star Destroyer, like it was in Legends in the Dark Empire Saga, so much as it's just... Another Super Star Destroyer winds up getting in charge of that, it seems, uh, and having that within their arsenal very much like there was all that talk over the who was going to control the Ravager previously. I never would have expected Sloane to wind up surviving and becoming one of the early leaders of what's going to become the First Order. That completely caught me off guard. I expected her to die, probably trying to take down or succeeding in taking down Rax. Yeah. There were, again, you know, I've, I've mentioned the little things. Page seven, we see that Palpatine can sense shatter points. I sense chaos, weakness. I sense a shatter point. I was like, oh, oh, snap. That's about the time of Return of the Jedi with the uh, Death Star 2 going down and stuff. So he was sensing that. Page 339 talks about the Ghost Finder fleet versus the Sith Armada. Throwaway line, but it's like, ooh, okay. We see Commodore Gate go down in the Battle of Jakku. I thought that was kind of a cool moment. And then we see two of the, uh, the ships pull each other down with, with uh, uh, tractor beam at least one of them pulls him down which made me stop and think like okay wait the 
what's the name of the Star Destroyer from Lost Stars that goes down during this battle? Like that goes down in that specific way, if I remember correctly. That was the uh, the Inflictor. Okay, yeah, that's what I was like. I'm like, wait, isn't this shouldn't this be her ship? Like, yeah, that threw me off. I was like, hold on, I'm I'm a little lost here. Uh, and then this one, like, they referred to Palpatine and Vader's empire a couple times as the Sith Empire. Uh, and then they were also talking about a fallen Sith Empire. And I was like, okay, are these the two, are these two the same things? But I don't think they are. On page 378, it says, uh, ahead the hallway opens up into an eight-sided chamber in the center of the same shape bank of computer systems, but not systems like the ones found on Star Destroyers or even the Death Star. No, these are ancient computational mechanisms from an earlier civilization. From previously when, Rax cannot say, the Old Republic? The fallen Sith Empire? He knows not and cares little. Their history is irrelevant. But I was like, oh, okay, so clearly there was still a Sith Empire back before everything that came up with Palpatine and stuff, so that's kind of cool. But this goes on to that part that I was talking about. It says, for decades, these computers have been plotting a journey outside of the known galaxy in an unexplored infinity, Palpatine explained. One closed off by a labyrinth of solar storms, rogue magnospheres, black holes, gravity wells, and things far stranger. Anyone who tried to conquer the maze did not survive. Ships were obliterated or returned to the galaxy devoid of travelers. Communications from those explorers were incomprehensible either shot through with such static to make it the content useless or filled with enough inane babble to serve as a perfectly clear sign that the explorers had gone utterly mad out there in isolation. But Palpatine had one in the Navy who knew something of the unknown regions, Admiral Thrawn, an alien with ice blue skin who came from beyond the border of the unknown galaxy. Palpatine only kept that one around because of what he knew of transversing those deadly intersections. Much of what Thrawn knew went into the computations of these machines. Palpatine said that this galaxy was to be his, but only that it was only one among many. Again, the phrase rose, the unexplored infinity. This, he noted, was his domicy. Domacy was the uh, game board, the chess board they were talking about. The galaxy is his game board. If he lost this game, the game board was to be broken in half and discarded. A new demos must be found. The computers here have long been searching for a way through the storms and the black spaces. Slowly, surely, they have been putting together a map, a journey into chaos. The Empire sent probe droids to test the computations as the computers have made them. Many never return. But some kept reporting in, pinging the transponder here. Every droid that made it further contributed to the map. And with distance achieved, the computers, through the scanning droids, continued to chart the course and compute the next branches of navigation. Before Palpatine's demise at the hands of the rebels, the computers finished their calculations, finally finding a way through the unknown. The Emperor was convinced that something waited for him out there. Some origin of the Force, some dark presence formed of malevolent substance. He said he could feel the waves of it radiating now. The way was clear. The Emperor had called it a signal, conveniently one that only he could hear. Now that to me was, I mean, that to me, I felt like that was the Snoke part. But it's like, they talk about ancient computers. Was this something the Sith were working on even before Palpatine became the, the, the charged Sith? Like, I don't know, man. That that got my head rolling there with so many things. And like you say about Ray, it's like, and then yet she kind of just falls into it. Now she's the boss and yet has no idea about any of this stuff because it all died with Rax. Yeah, I thought that part was very cool. This idea, it's sort of hinting that there's more to the backstory, more to the backdrop that we haven't seen yet. Very much kind of like what we got with, again, making the comparison of Dark Empire, having those little things in the back that talked about ancient times. And then that winds up 
being the basis of Tales of the Jedi, which has its own backstory hinted at that becomes the earlier Golden Age of the Sith era of Tales of the Jedi, and so on and so on. I like that it seems like they are trying to establish sort of this broader backstory. I would assume that's probably for revelations that'll come up in like episode 8 or 9, that they're building it in there so that things can be revealed in future stories in the future of Star Wars, as opposed to it being so they can go back and tell those origin stories. But it's nice to see them at least starting to do something like that. Although, it did make me laugh because their description there, as as you read it there, reminds me, it makes me think that Chuck Wendig watched the 50th anniversary special of Doctor Who. <laughs> because there's a point in that special where they need to come up with calculations that would take, you know, hundreds upon hundreds of years. And basically, the Doctor manages to... Uh, to have it embedded in his sonic screwdriver so it's constantly trying to do those calculations all the way back since the very first incarnation or regeneration or initial birth, I guess you could say, of the Doctor. And it's like, you know, the calculations would take centuries. You could never do it. Oh, I've been working on this all my lives. And then in comes, you know, they're, they're, it's all 12 of them. No, sir, all 13. Like, I expected there at some point to be a very clear Doctor Who reference within that segment, because it's exactly what those computers sound like. These ancient computers are the Dr. Sonic screwdriver and TARDIS constantly trying to figure out how to save Gallifrey. Nice. Which for Doctor Who fans, they're out there like, yes, yes, uh uh-huh, and then everybody else is like, the F is he talking about? I gotta get on this Doctor Who kick, man. Now, And part of that, too, was he had sent the Ravager into hiding earlier, so the Ravager was already out there. That's the Super Stardust where... But what was interesting... Did he send the Ravager? I thought the Ravager was the wreckage on Jakku that they fly through in Force Awakens. Oh, maybe there's an, an error there, because I'm pretty sure I got the Ravager was from that, because he mentioned the Ravager went into hiding and that a Sentinel droid would come. And I was like, wait, who are the Sentinel droids again? And then it, it dawned on me. I was like, oh, those are the Sidious droids, the ones that you were talking about from the other comic and stuff, which made me wonder how many of those are out there. And even of those, some of them were told that they were sentient, that they talked like Palpatine, acted like Palpatine. So it's like, good Lord, how many of those sentient ones are out there doing things in Palpatine's name still? In a sense, those sentinel droids are clones of Palpatine. Like, holy crap. All right, so I'm looking at, granted, this is, uh, I had to pull up Wikipedia. It's been a long time since I've looked into this. Um, and I haven't summarized the book yet for myself, but it looks like when he says it goes into high, it's, it's just meaning that it was one of the ships that just kind of went off and sort of did their own thing and was and was like in those nebulas and such as the Imperial fleet was kind of regrouping after Indoor. But yes, it's present at the Battle of Jakku because yes, it is the one that's in the graveyard of giants. So unless there is something screwy going on and there's a bad reference in there, it's if it is, it's not something that. Wikipedians caught apparently, but yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it was. It is the one that's crashed there on uh, Jakku. Aha! Uh-huh. I guess I really, aside from the end, I really don't have anything else to add. But I'd like to read a segment that is actually a little bit longer than what I would usually read. Kind of like Mark's a little bit, a little bit ago, also was a little bit longer than what we'd usually read. Because when there are passages that are revelatory, um, I think they're done fairly well. Um, particularly when it's trying to give us sort of a big picture look at things. So is there anything you want to add? I want to hit a piece that's on page 405 to 406 and talk about the ending a little bit. But before we actually talk endings, is there anything else we want to work in about the story other than that? No, I mean, it was the eclipse. I just found it. It was the eclipse that ah, was sent yes, out there. Yes, that's the one, the, the one that was assumed lost, but they never found the 
the explanation for it that I mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think for me overall with this, like there's just so much going on that I think that this book series could rise up in fans, you know, perceptions of it because of all the little things going on. And I think like, you know, the interludes and stuff, they feel like they're thrown away right now, but if things tie into it more, or if some of these interludes become big events in other book series and stuff, like this could be one of those stories that really ties into things a lot more. I mean, that Chuck has done a real good job in that regard. I mean, there were so many little things. I've got tons of notes, but but most of them are all little things like, oh, so we brought this in. This is that. Okay, this is the new that. All right. Uh, but for me, I think that the one things that really stood out were the aspects of what was going on with the Force because Gallius Rax's character dismisses it all. Like, when it talks about Palpatine finding that signal and stuff, Gallius feels like it's just Palpatine's own desires being reflected back to him, that he's completely mad. You want something long enough, you're going to see it yourself. And yet, from Rax's point of view, everything about the dark side, everything about the Force is just dismissed. But what we know, we know that's not the case. We also see uh, the Kyber Crystals being returned to planets in one of them. And I thought that that was a really morbid moment because like the team that's doing it kind of volunteered to return them and yet by the end of the ep- the chapter that they were in they all died it was like what a dark place you know like you return to the kyber crystals you're doing something good and yet there is just nothing like the one guy says like we didn't even do this you know like we shouldn't have to take these back and and yet they all end up dying for it all like there was these force aspects about the story that i hope they pick up on and play with more because gallius's point of view dismisses it all and i feel like that's not something that should be so easily or callously dismissed uh no good deed goes unpunished I will say at least by the fact that he just misses the Force so much and the fact that he's, you know, dead at the end of the story, hopefully this puts to bed the uh, Gallius Rax is Snoke theories out there because there are tons of Snoke theories and hopefully he's gone. Uh, and it is not Jar Jar either. Jar Jar's a, a, a clown, folks. All right, so I will say that one thing that I think Wendy did exceptionally well within this book is the last chapter or two. Once everything is settling down, he does a very good job of interweaving sort of the big picture what's happening in the galaxy thing, but in a way that makes it still seem like it's all, you know, human frailty that is driving so much of this. And interweaving that with other segments of sort of like, sort of those in, the, the multiple endings of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, right? Where it's, you know, and what is this character doing now? What is this character doing? What is happening here in this place we saw? What is happening in this other place that we saw? that brings an end to all these other stories that, in a sense, throughout this book have been interweaving. But yes, they are separate situations, separate individuals, and they all kind of need their own end cap to wrap the trilogy up. But I think it's the way he describes what's happening there, you know, with the end of the Empire, with the Galactic Concordance, which we already knew the name of and the existence of from other previous uh, works in this era. And, you know, things like what's going on with the idea, you know, on Coruscant, people are going to be able to you know, celebrate without being uh, harassed by stormtroopers like they were originally and so on and so on. Um, but he's got a segment in here that does a great job of setting up what's coming next and what happens after the book, which I wanted to get to. Again, a little bit longer than I would usually read, but I think it's a very well done segment um, that sets up what's coming. And this, in a sense, to me, defines why you should probably read these because of how much it is setting up. And it says, the war ends, the empire dies, but the battle goes on. Though the ceasefire is signed, the Battle of Jakku still rages. Its forces there refuse to surrender. They fight past the point of sanity for weeks, then months. 
The shattered Imperial remnant has no strategy. Their base is overtaken. The captains of the lingering Imperial fleet use more dramatic and desperate tactics as the battle rages, many trying to mimic the tractor beam snare that served as Agate, if that's how you say it, uh, her final moments or final maneuver in this life. A few of those captains, utilizing mysterious coordinates, jump into unknown space. It is assumed that their disappearance is tantamount to suicide. This remnant is like a parasite with its head sunk in the meat of its own certainty, teeth biting tight. It takes months for the fighting to truly end, months for the New Republic soldiers to round up the captives and count the dead. All that time for the Empire's ghost to catch up with the death of its body and realize that the fight is well and truly over. Even then, it doesn't stop across the galaxy. Remnants remain. Some hide out, waiting for some savior to come save them. Others go out with spectacular flare-ups of violence and viciousness. But these remnants are few. Gallius Rax did the work of destroying the Dements, or I think it's pronounced Demain, properly. Those that linger cannot stay long. The rest are prisoners, so many that the New Republic has no idea what to do with them. On Jakku, the world leaves behind a world of wreckage. Scavengers feast upon the remains. Nima the Hut emerges even before the fighting is truly over to begin hoarding what she and her people can find. Already, a black market forms around the junk and debris. Weapons and computers and engines, all littering the sand like the markets of a massive graveyard. Nima sits at the center of this black market like a fat, throbbing tumor diverting blood flow to itself. The galaxy heals. The people do, too. But a grievous injury such as the one caused by the Empire cannot heal without leaving scars behind as a reminder. I think it's a very well done sort of, re, uh, not a recap, but a, a, a setup for what's coming later and a way to sort of round things out here for the story uh, and the sense of what's going on with the galaxy. And he uses imagery uh, like the idea of Nima as a tumor the idea of you know the empire as a wound on the galaxy and such to great effect there it's one of those things where I sit back and realize you know when Windig is at his a game there are times when he writes passages or dialogue that is excellent but most of the time it's more like he's on kind of his b or c game which is what makes these books kind of Hard to get through for some, and just mildly annoying in writing style for others. But credit where it's due, when it comes to things like that ending, I think he hits it right where it needed to be hit. He nails it. Yeah, for me, I, I, I kind of almost go to the Bounty Hunter trilogy, because I didn't enjoy that book series for its writing. And I do know that there are a lot of people out there that enjoyed that series, but that was just one that I could not get into, no matter how many times I read it. Uh, and this one, I think for me, that's that's the biggest downside for me was the writing style in itself. I would find myself drawn out of the story, rereading things, going back on chapters. And that was about my biggest complaint. I mean, you know, overall, I really enjoyed the characters. I think the characters, once again, that is Chuck Wendig's strength. He really knows how to write some character dialogue. He is hilarious. I, I, w I think I would rather see him, instead of getting a trilogy of books again, I'd like to see him as one of a few authors in a series of books, kind of like what we had with uh, Troy Denning, Karen Travis, and, and Aaron Alston, like have him as one of the three or four authors that are writing a series. I'd like to get back to something like that. I miss, in a sense, the tales that were tales and less of the world building. Uh, this one's definitely, it did a lot for the world building of the new canon. Uh, so on one hand, I can appreciate that, but on the other, I'm ready to get into a more closed-off story, one that's just focusing on these characters and sticking with them, not jumping from one group of characters to another, to another, to another, and which is weird because, you know, I mean, some of my favorite stories are ones that do precisely that, but this one, it was Nora's group and stuff, and like I said, I didn't feel like this story was their story, and I felt like it should have been. 
Uh, you know, it could have been more focused on them and really brought that forward. Uh, but again, you can't get wrong with the dialogue, man. He really nails it. Yep. So I think that this would be one that, I mean, I, I said it, I guess, kind of in my spoiler-free thoughts. This is one that, yes, if you're a reader of the new story group canon, you do need to read this book. There are elements of it that are absolutely necessary to this era. Important happenings that happen in this book that are in, in many ways more impactful than what we got in a lot of the other books. If you are not someone who, like me, if you're someone who just did not like Wendig's writing style for Aftermath, kind of suck it up, get through Aftermath so you got the introduction to these characters that is really necessary and to some of these interlude characters that are necessary to understand the later interludes. Then get into Life Debt, which I think you're going to enjoy. And then this, that I think you'll enjoy for the ride, but then afterwards be kind of scratching your head about certain elements. Um, but I do think that these have become essential parts of this new continuity that can't be easily written off as, well, I didn't like the first one, so I'm not going to read the other two. You'd be missing too much that seems to be necessary for this broader thing. And again, and it was an enjoyable read as I was blowing through it the first time around. It's just on retrospect, looking back at it, saying, huh, so what was up with these things? Again, not so much, what was he thinking? in a, I can't believe he wrote this sort of way, and more of a, huh, what was he thinking with some of these choices? What was the rationale, and why choose the way that he chose in certain ways? And I'd, I'd put it there as, I said, probably like a, a six or a seven out of ten. I don't think you're going to be super disappointed that you bought the thing, or that you read the thing. I don't think it's going to blow you away, but I think it's going to be one that, for most readers, they'll be able to get enough out of to justify the purchase and feel like they didn't miss out on an important piece of this new continuity as they're doing all their world building. See, and I'm curious if, if Story Group is going to go back over this book and go, oh, hey, Chuck, I like what you did with that. We, we should make an event around that. Like the whole, you know, Ghost Finder fleet and stuff. Like, you know, I, I don't feel like they're giving list of things like, hey, it'd be cool if you drop this uh, phrase in there because we're going to do something with it later, which would be cool if they were, but I don't necessarily feel like that's the case you know i think that's one of the things that i'm struggling with the most with this new canon is that for the first time ever the books don't feel like they're really expanding as much as doing their own thing which is what i always kind of didn't think that's what legends was doing but that kind of was what legends was doing like i want more stories that are going to just push the this overall story like the big bombastic stuff you know like i want something that's critical to what's going to happen in the films. And I don't think we're going to be getting that. And I want to see that at some point. I, I You were talking about, you know, if you read the first one and skipping two and three, I wonder about the opposite of that. I wonder if you could skip the first book, read two and three, and get the best out of this without needing that first book. I wonder how much of the first book you actually would be required to read. Because Chuck does do a good job of kind of rehashing enough events that you could kind of jump into that second one and go forward. I think that that would be something that we could pull off. What do you think? I think it's possible. I think that there are certain elements that you would need to know from that first story, but could you read a summary of it and then jump into the other two books so as not to deal with the sentence fragments everywhere and such? Maybe. Um, I do think that it's probably worthwhile to pick up the first one, though, but then that's just kind of my my thought process. Here's, here's the question I have for you, though. Given the unusual writing style um, that has been called out quite a bit uh, within the fandom community of this trilogy, and especially the first book. Given the seeming apparent pushing of some of his own personal real-life politics within the books, and given 
the, if not the actual man's personality, at least the social media personality of Chuck Wendig, to go back to the whole comparison of the Donald versus Donald Trump and the Chuck versus Chuck Wendig from back when we first talked about Aftermath. Uh, and given the controversy surrounding the guy and his outspokenness and uh, his, his clashes at times with Star Wars fans and, and just general personality traits, at least on social media and whatnot, I got to sit back and say, okay, he managed to take a trilogy that started off very weak and make it stronger, so he's made his mark. He didn't do anything particularly spectacular or offensive, just kind of mainline bleh and nyeh when doing the comic adaptation of The Force Awakens. It added nothing, but it detracted very little anyway, so whatever. Chuck Wendig has made his mark on Star Wars. In my opinion now, this is where you say, okay... Given the way he acted in some respects during this, given that now he's made his mark and there were so many people who weren't thrilled with his writing style, hey, you know what? Thank you very much, Chuck, but we won't have you back again. I am of the mindset that Chuck Wendig has done his thing and should no longer be expected to ever write for Star Wars again. Cut your losses now, and that's it. Um, so my question to you would be, would you like to see... Chuck Wendig return at some point in the future in any form to write for Star Wars again, or are you like me and say, okay, this is it, enough was enough, you've done your thing, bye. No, I'm in the buy category. Uh, there have been authors and legends that only did one book that when you get to those books, it's clear that that's why. When Chuck was picked to do the adaptation of The Force Awakens, I was like, oh gosh, they're really pushing him into a lot of books now. Now he's got four projects under his belt in an era where that not many people have contributed. That almost makes him an authority. Ah, that scared me. And then there are times where I'm like, God, if he'd have just changed the way he wrote the book, you know, from that first person, third person, whatever, and made it like every other point of view that we've pretty much gotten. Would that have made it to a point where I could get through it? I just think that the writing style he uses, it just doesn't work well enough. Like like I said, even in the, in the narration and stuff, when Ray Sloan would think things, I thought that, that that was part of the dialogue just because of how it was wrote and the way it was being written or, or read. Uh, so yeah, I, I'm in the boat of, I, I would rather not see him come back and do more. There wasn't enough about this book that was bombastic. And in fact, the only things about it that were bombastic at all seemed to be controversial things. Um, and, and in fact, his writing style was like one of those things like, if you didn't like it, well, then clearly you weren't, uh, you weren't educated enough. And then you'd have people that are like, I'm an educator. This guy doesn't have an education. Like, you know, it, it became this big thing in its own right. It almost became political in its own way. It's like, well, there's our truth and then there's your truth and our truth trumps your truth unless it's your truth trumping our truth. And, you know, you watch people interact with him on social media and it's like, well, if you're in his friend camp, well, hey, that's great. He's going to be great to you all day. You guys, will, you know, you'll bolster each other up. Hey, go to this website. They're really cool because they like me and, and hey, we like Chuck. Go and look at this book and stuff. And that side of things is a little weird to watch and then watch him be so disdainful to other fans and stuff just because they had a hard time reading the book. I mean, I wanted to enjoy the first one. I just couldn't do it. I just, it was one of those things that was a visceral effect for me and I was trying to be open to it. Like, you know, I want, I want to enjoy this. I'm watching other people enjoy this, but what is it about this style that they're enjoying? Like I, for me, it was such a, a shift you know, I, when I think about a first-person book, I think Koran Horn, you know, in I, Jedi. Like, that was one of my favorite ways of doing it. Karen Travis messed with first-person in her books off and on. You know, didn't have a problem with that. But the way Chuck handled it, that was insane, man. That was just like, I, 
like, hey, we could take a, a context and we could mix two at the same time. And that's what I kept feeling like. I felt like sometimes they were using the words right and then sometimes they would shift back and forth. Like they were going from third person to first person to back and forth to back and forth. And sometimes like he didn't know when to use it right. And then, of course, it gets that aspect of like, well, I wasn't the best at school. Maybe I'm just reading this wrong. Which when you're reading a book to escape from reality, you don't want to be sitting there questioning your own education. <laughs> As opposed to questioning the education of whoever wrote it, which happens to me a lot when I'm reading certain certain book series, but not necessarily Star Wars. I guess the last thing I would add, just as a side note, if you decide to pick up Empire's End and you haven't yet, and you've made it this far into uh, the episode still listening to spoilers on something you haven't read, or if perhaps you want to track down collector's editions and things like that, we should note here that like so many other recent Delray hardbacks, yes, this one had a Barnes & Noble special edition with an exclusive pack-in poster. This one has, uh, it's two-sided. One side has Nora that says, Flying to Victory, and uh, says then, Stand with the New Republic. And then you've got one that has Ray Sloan that says, uh, Strength through Order. Nice play on words there, right, with First Order. And then it says, Stand with the Empire. And I think it's probably one of the coolest of those little bind-in poster things that we've seen so far. It almost looks like something that would have come out of that Star Wars propaganda book with the art prints that came out a while back. So, if you are still looking for it, there is that Barnes & Noble Special Edition. And as far as I know, there wasn't anywhere that offered a signed copy this time. Usually what we're seeing is that one that either there'll be regular editions and... A Barnes & Noble special edition with something added in, or it'll be that there's a regular edition, no Barnes & Noble version, but somewhere out there there is a signed copy. I want to say that Life Debt was the one time we saw a situation where there were both signed copies available through one retailer, like Books A Million, I think it was, and a Barnes & Noble special edition. So uh, there is a special edition of it out there with the bound-in uh, poster if you're still looking to pick up the book at some point. <laughs> Now that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. We'd like to thank you once again for hanging around with us as we ponder on sharing our fandom. Remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division of Podcasts at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes are also available on Stitcher and on iTunes, which we always encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it. You can also find links to our episodes on both our Twitter and our Facebook pages at SW Beyond Films, or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in your search bar. Hey, but no matter how you get there, be sure to like our Facebook page. It's one of the best ways to interact with us. It's our own home one, if you will. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans. So if you have any Star Wars and or Legends questions, or you just want to comment about a past episode, fire off. You can always email us directly at SWBeyondFilms at StarWarsFanWorks.com Now, lastly, before we go, we want to mention to you our sponsors, Audible. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash StarWarsReport, you get a free trial run of Audible.com to see what they're all about. Our sponsors have more than 100,000 titles. You can explore the Star Wars Legends universe or the canon one or any other genre without risk of being stuck with a book you flat out hate because Audible members, they can exchange any book within 12 months, that's one year, with no questions asked. So, in this digital age, if you're thinking of making that switch from the page to the audio book audible just might be right for you so once again for stars beyond the films this has been mark and whistler and nathan saying thanks for listening and may the force be with you 
don't quote us the odds that when I run down to the mailbox, my celebration passes for me and my wife will be here. Ooh. What are the odds? I'll be jealous. 900,000%. Yes, yes, yes. 